Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to sit down and speak with Carl Kroll, an American that after his first bike tour in 2017, did a tour through Eastern Europe and Central Asia in 2018. Less than a year later, in January 2019, Carl dipped his rear wheel in the ocean just off the coast of Argentina in Ushuaia before starting the long trek north up towards Alaska and the Arctic Ocean. After cycling as far as Costa Rica, he was forced to temporarily put the tour on hold due to the COVID-19 epidemic. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Uh, I, I, listen to, I listen to your show all the time while I'm cycling, so... Uh, yeah. It's when did you first here. find it, if you don't mind me asking? Ah, I, you know, I guess somewhere in the middle of South America, uh, I must have just, I did a blanket search on my podcast app for bike touring podcast and you came up. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, uh, why don't you start by telling us about yourself? So I'm sure you know that my, my kind of standard, how I run through my show. So tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, well, I'm from Minnesota. Uh, that's in the U.S. And uh, I've always been interested in human-powered adventure. I started out here with lots of canoeing and that sort of thing. Uh, eventually, when I was in university, I did a small skateboard tour. Uh, tour by longboard, which I built in my state, and that kind of opened up the door. Uh, and then I worked after, after graduation. I worked and worked abroad quite a bit. And eventually found myself moving to Poland, uh, Warsaw, Poland. And when I looked at the map of that part of the part of the world, I decided, oh, Istanbul looks like a cool destination. Uh, that I could bike to from Warsaw. So I went there with the intention of biking someday to Istanbul. That's so uh, cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm, I'm 31, 
and and what <laughs> no no sorry i guess i guess I'm 31 years old sorry <laughs> nice um and what did you in in the years before the the bike touring and uh after university what did you do for a living I went to university for mechanical engineering and I got a job that where I was traveling for work a lot to different projects. I eventually became a project manager for different projects. I worked in uh, India, China, uh, Poland, Belgium, and Chile. And while I was working abroad, uh, I kind of realized, like, I started taking on projects where I knew I would be in foreign countries, and I realized there's a big difference between traveling and working in those countries. So, uh, in, I mean, working in countries is an amazing experience, but I really kind of wanted to travel and take, all, take the time to really see those countries where I was living. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because I mean, I've lived in, I've also lived in, uh, I think, well, including Canada, six countries. And I've always appreciated the fact that I could travel around these regions while working there. But like you said, it's you're, you're always kind of on a time limit, you're on a schedule, uh, you know, you have a week off, and you got to get back to work, that kind of thing. So it definitely causes some challenges. And maybe you miss out on a lot of things. Yeah, I 100% agree. And it yeah, works always on your mind. And yeah, just, just now I find the freedom of bike touring in those countries. There's never, <laughs> I, it, it's a different lifestyle. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I usually ask people about their previous bike touring experience, if any, but um, for you, I want to know about your previous sporting experience. Cause that seems like to me, when I look through your, your Instagram and stuff, you've done a lot of different interesting sports sure uh any in particular that you'd like to ask about or Um, just uh well you did the long distance skateboard from between two cities right yeah so i when i was in university i actually was building longboard skateboards uh in my garage and I was inspired by a couple of guys I'd been watching on YouTube who were doing long distance skateboard travel. And so, and I actually ended up, I would race, uh, race longboards downhill. And some of these longboard races, afterwards, they do a long distance push race. And I actually ended up, yeah, I ended up winning a couple of those races and, uh, then getting more and more interested in the long distance skateboarding aspect of things. And so I built, built a skateboard specifically for long distance, uh, long distance pushing. And to test it out, I ended up doing this trip between Minneapolis and Duluth in Minnesota, which I think the total distance was, I don't know, over, over 160 miles. I mean, pushing close to 300 K okay, yeah. kilometers. And I, I just did that and was totally enthralled by how people reacted when they saw me with a giant backpack 
and my skateboard. How what's uh what's different about like a long distance skateboard compared to your regular skateboard for people that might not know, such as myself? <laughs> sure. Um, well, so how I built it is I built it to build a skateboard. You actually push layers of wood together and glue it, and it's much uh, skinnier than a normal skateboard. And oh, okay. inside this inside the skateboard to make it really lightweight i actually added foam a foam core mm-hmm. and i set sa- i sandwiched it in carbon fiber so it's a super lightweight skinny long skateboard oh cool uh, yeah and then i run run huge wheels on it i like in, in uh, terms of huge mean do you mean like the the diameter or you mean like the, the length of the actual wheel the diameter of the wheels it's maybe been so long since i've been in that world yeah i'm guessing like 90 millimeters something like that oh okay yeah it's still pretty big yeah very big for a skateboard yeah i just did uh i just released Uh, a podcast i don't know if you saw it um shred america it was these boys they skateboarded from chicago to new york city about 12 years ago now they finally released the documentary it's start coming out today i think Today the fifth. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened to it. It sounds so cool. Yeah, yeah. They were young guys, and it was. It's like, yeah, one of those things, you know. Yeah, and and just like they had, I printed out my like this was before the time of GPS, like a phone GPS smartphones. Yeah, I printed my directions on Maps Quest, <laughs> and I hope it worked out better for you than printed, it did for them. <laughs> No, it, it doesn't work because with a skateboard, like Maps Quest biking directions in 2011 when I did that tour, it, they, it, I don't know, it took me on gravel roads and I was trying to push on gravel roads with a skateboard. So it's just a really soul crushing experience when you yeah. skateboard and then all of a sudden realize that your directions are taking you on a gravel road for the next 20 miles. Yeah, that's mental. I see you, you also do did, anything. You also did some ski joring, which looks awesome. Um, can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my uh, my sister and brother-in-law have a giant shelter, and uh, they've lent it to me sometimes. So I, I got into cross-country skiing uh, a couple, maybe four years ago. Okay. And, and I just fell in love with cross country skiing and there's a big cross country ski race, the biggest one in North America called the Birkebeiner. That's pretty near here. Okay. And without, without any cross country ski experiment experience previously, I signed up in the summer and said, I'm going to ski this 50 kilometer long race and learn how to ski this winter. Uh, oh wow! So I I learned how to cross, yeah, and but but I absolutely fell in love with the sport. Um, anyways, like love cross country skiing. They have this giant schnauzer, and they've uh, been willing to lend it to me to try skijoring, which is an absolute blast. Is it? Yeah, I've been looking at um, I'm I'm looking to buy a dog, and I've been really like, I want a dog that I could do ski joring and uh mountain bike joring as well and th- like all these different sports and just train that thing for it looks bl- like a blast and the, and the dog absolutely loves it and 
there's a there's a big race here in the Twin Cities. I only I've only been home once to do it since I started skiing. But being in the being in a big race with it, all these dogs, there's 50 dogs. They're all going crazy. None of them know what's going on. And then a gun goes off, and everybody everybody just starts running. People are getting tangled up. It's, yeah, yeah. it's hilarious. Yeah, it looks so yeah. it looks so fun. Um, I was going to tell you if you're uh, ever back in Europe, though, in Sweden, they have a, they have a I think it's 300 kilometer cross country ski race. It's around a lake up there, um, yeah. something like that. It's, it's crazy. It's the uh, I'd have to double check, but I know the I know I think they they do a one is a cross country skiing one, one is a road biking one, and uh, they do something else. Yeah, Swedes. I, I know that they have the the Vesselopit. Yeah, Vesselopit. Is... Yeah. That's 100k, oh, and then okay? I think they have they have like an ultra though too. So yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So they have multiple, and there's this uh, worldwide uh, ski race. Every country gets the, it's called the World Lapid Federation, and so the one in the United States just happens to be in Wisconsin near oh, where I'm okay. from. Mm-hmm. So when I was living in Europe, I actually skied the one for Poland in the mountains there, and it's just it's just a wonderful wonderful really cool thing you can do all around the world doing these marathon distance ski races oh that's very neat i'll have to look into it i just got cross-country skis but i don't have skate skis yet so that'll be the next purchase next year oh both are great yeah um how did you get into bike touring uh so like i said i did a skateboard tour and after the skateboard tour i decided i need to do something that's more efficient (laughs) Uh, and so when I moved to Europe, I, I had this Warstadt to Istanbul tour in the back of my mind and, uh, to do a warm up tour, uh, the first year I was living there, I biked from Warsaw around the Tatra mountains. Uh, so from Warsaw down South into Slovakia. And then around the Tatra Mountains, and I actually climbed the highest peak in Slovakia while I was there. And then I uh, biked back to Warsaw. Nice. And How long was that? That was. Ah, it was in total probably just over a week, and I think it was was. Uh, I mean, the time it took was probably eight days, and it was one over a thousand kilometers okay and and i think this is a mistake that bike tours make often when they start out is just doing crazy distances every day and i don't what basically what i found as as i continue bike touring is i slow down and enjoy the touring more when i did that first tour i always thought oh i can I can push in 160k mm-hmm. days, nothing. I, I can do 200, like, and just push, 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 kind of a racing mentality. Yeah. But, and I mean, I ended that tour barely. Like, I had to be back for a wedding, and I know I was barely able to walk at wedding just because. It, yeah, and then I think also in, on that note, for that kind of like, um, when you're doing fast touring, you're you're not getting to see as much the the life around you you know you're you're riding big days you're tired you you eat you still partake with food culture but then that kind of 
then it's time to go to bed because the next day you're going to be hitting out another big day. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah and, and your state of mind in when you're at that point, you're kind of delirious. Almost. You know, it's just everything's like you're in a dream state. Mm-hmm. Everything's just kind of blurring past you. I mean, still a great experience, but uh, but so I started with that tour, mm-hmm. and I I wasn't actually able to get in the tour to Istanbul the next year, or that year, and then the next year, uh, I had the plan to bike from Warsaw to Istanbul. Okay. So that was my my first big tour. What kind of bike did you use for this? Uh, I've out. Almost always toured on a a twenty nine or hardtail. Um, so I, I ride a salsa El Mariachi. Okay. And and it's a bike that they don't make anymore. It's very similar to the ah now I can't I can't think of the frame, but it's it's uh yeah, it's just a flat bar and a twenty niner and mm-hmm. And I find it really comfortable to ride, and obviously it can, it can handle any terrain I throw at it. Yeah. Do you use a brook seat on it, or do you? What kind of seat do you use? So I rode a, a WTB seat that came with the came with the bike yeah. up until six months ago, and then it w- it just started falling apart after so much riding. And I switched to a Brooks, and I I love the Brooks. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, I got a brand new bike recently. I was out for you know I always get a little bit of saddle sore in one spot uh, throughout the winter with the Brooks seat, but I think that's just because I was indoor and you have a lot more weight down because you don't stand up and you don't coast at all when you're riding indoors. And uh, I got the new bike, and I was using the factory seat that was on it. And it's a Cell Italia, but you know they make so many different seats. And it was killing me. And I put the Brooks on yesterday and I was like, oh my God, man. Like, what was I thinking? Like, why didn't I switch this the day I got the new bike? You know, it's so good. <laughs> and is, is your Brooks broken in already? Yeah, it's got, um, I did a thousand kilometer tour on it last summer and then probably a couple thousand kilometers on it this past winter. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, the funny, when I switched from the WTB, I was... I was complaining about some, like some pain when I was biking and everybody said, Oh, when you switch to Brooks, don't expect it to be better immediately because it takes so long to break it in. And the first day on my Brooks, I, I loved it so much. Even without it broken in, it was so better than the beat up saddle I was using. <laughs> Just showing how bad mm-hmm. the saddle was that I had been using. I had um, before then. another bike I had, I had a Brooks Colt on it. It came with it. It was, I bought it off, I used off someone, but it had never been oiled and it was hard. Like you knocked on it. It was like hitting hard leather, man. Like there was no flex at all. Um, that one never yeah. got comfortable. I thought about maybe soaking it and trying some, just experimenting with it to see what I can do if, if it is possible to get it comfier again, but I don't know. Um, so you, you bought that salsa in for the, you used that in 2017 and then again in 2018. Is that right? I bought that bike in 2016 just oh, okay. as my single track trail riding bike. Uh, I'd had my mountain bike stolen when I was in university. Okay. And that was my first mountain bike I had had since then. And it's been my bike I've used on 
every single tour except for just a month in Norway when I used a gravel bike. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that's, um, I, I mean, I also have a 29er hardtail and I used that for my first big tour, 1500 kilometers. And it was, it was great. And I, I had, um, I had a rear rack mounted. It was not mounted very well. What's, what's your mounting setup for your rear rack? Cause I'm wondering here, how do you keep the stability? Um, I just have, uh, pipe clamps that go on my, my rear it, so it actually doesn't have any uh, mounting brackets. Yeah. And just pipe clamps to the ah, – I can't think of the name of those Yeah, two, I'm thinking too. Rear... Um, seat stays? Seat stays. <laughs> seat stays. And uh, that's worked really well for me. Okay. Yeah, because what I did on the first my first tour is I, I took the two bars and I bent them and twisted them and I mounted them to my seat post clamp. But that was a terrible idea because it just lost all the horizontal stability. It became like one oh, mounting point. Totally. Yeah, yeah, it was it was so shitty. Right, right. Um, and so yeah, I've never I've never toured on the mountain bike since then. But I mean, yeah, I think in in hindsight I should have. I was living in Malaysia. I didn't even know where to get pipe clamps like that. You know, it was just one of those things. But, um, right, right. In hindsight, yeah, that's what I should have done as well. Um, so I saw that in your original tour, you're using B twin saddlebags. And I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, I guess. Um, people a lot of times ask me about saddlebags and what they should buy. And I always try to say that, you know, like get what you can afford. I mean, B twin is the decathlon brand, right? And how did that hold up for you? Well, so are you talking about the panniers or saddlebags? Oh, sorry, it was that. <laughs> sorry, yeah, it was that. It was that the panniers. Yeah, they're panniers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've I've used uh, the Catalan panniers just because that was the cheapest thing, and I didn't know anything about bike touring. Mm-hmm. And those held up pretty well. Uh, not totally waterproof by the end of my first Istanbul tour. And after, but the thing is, to this day, I'm still using decathlon paneers. Oh yeah, no way. (laughs) Yeah, they they have a, they have a, a, like, I don't know what year it was that they came out with it, but they have, and I, I haven't looked recently to see if they're still selling them, but they have a little bit beefier paneers. Okay. And so I'm actually still using them. They're not (laughs) totally waterproof. I've wanted, I've been meaning to switch to something better. Yeah. Uh, but as, so, uh, as far so as budgeting goes, they, they hold up well. They're, they're worth their money, right? Right. They're worth their money. I mean, they're, they're so cheap. I think the cheapest ones you can get that are waterproof are $30, $30 for one That's or really cheap, something yeah. like that. So just nothing. And, and if somebody asks me who wants to get into bike touring, I, I tell them to go with that. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, I was trying to give somebody yeah. advice recently too. And I said, yeah, like, uh, I mean, there are other brands. It depends what your range is. You know, if you're, yeah, if you want to get Ortlieb's, you're not going to regret it, but you got to have the money for it. They're not cheap. Right. And it also depends on how long you're touring because for me, there's, there's no reason why I shouldn't have a nicer brand of paneers right now, but. <laughs> I, I guess I, I guess I just use what's what's working, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Do you, uh, do you carry anything else with you on your bike that would be unusual for a bike tour? Uh, so I, one thing I always carry with me is a fishing pole. And, uh, just because I found on my first tour that lots of the times you end up camping next to a nice stream Mm -hmm. and I love fishing (laughs) and it's a good way to get nice protein. So yeah, I I always carry a fishing pole. Yeah, you're from, you're from the, the northern across, so. northern U.S., so of course you're big into fishing, <laughs> lake area. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a choice. <laughs> and um, uh, how many meals? Like, do, how often do you feel that you? How often do you fish, and how often do you actually catch fish? I think it would be a sin to tour in Patagonia without a fishing pole. Oh yeah. Uh, oh man, you can. You're always camping near water, and there are so many fish. So. Oh, nice. I would, when I went to go get water, I would often just give a couple casts, fish for half an hour. And I came back with fish many, many times. So I would, I mean, at least while I was there, I would probably fish every other day. And oh, nice. my success rate when I was fishing was probably 80%. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> And do you, you carry climbing gear with you or is that just an off and on type thing? So I, in Argentina, I carried uh, climbing shoes with me for a while just because there's really, really good climbing. And that's something, something I enjoy back home. So I climbing shoes and if I ran into people who were rock climbers, I would see if they wanted to go climbing and that allowed me to go climbing a little bit in Argentina, which was awesome. Nice. And rock climbing. And then I had a good friend from the U S the same guy, John Scully, who I rode Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Oh yeah. Yeah. He flew, he flew down and met me in Bolivia uh, for some kind of, I guess suffer fest. I, I don't know what to call it, but <laughs> we decided uh, so a bad idea. How about that? <laughs> a really bad idea. But uh, we decided to bike across Bolivia with mountaineering gear. And then for extra measure, we also carried rock climbing gear. Which was, and and uh, with mountaineering gear, you mean you had like all the long ropes and everything too and all that stuff? We carry. We carried a 60-meter rope. We carried uh, mountaineering boots, crampons, ice axes, and, I mean, harnesses. I mean, everything. (laughs) That's nuts. Um, And and we were also riding some of the gnarliest terrain I've ever ridden, just sandy, sandy routes. So, like, pushing, pushing heavy, heavy bikes through deep Bolivian sand to go climb these mountains. And it, it was a, it was a really, really rad experience. Definitely. I don't know. It, it was, it was definitely out there. Uh, I do have some and, questions about it. Yeah. So at some point, so I'm, um, yeah. Um, okay. I think we'll just come back to it if that's not too big sure. a deal. Um, what I wanted to ask you actually jumping back to your first tour, 
what were some of the biggest learning things that you took away from it? So like you mentioned about not pushing too fast and enjoying the tour. What else did you learn on that tour? Uh, well, one big takeaway, uh, I'm, this is something funny is that I'm probably the only person who actually gained weight from their first tour. <laughs> like that, I, you always hear everybody's just always dropping weight. And that first tour, I went super light. Uh, I just had a bivy. I actually carried a bivy, uh, just, uh, just a, really the smallest tent you can get for one person yeah. with a single pole. And I actually carried a hammock, hammock as well. Uh, but what I realized was for wild camping and especially, especially I don't know, wild camping mm-hmm. where you don't know for sure if you're welcome there or if you should be wild camping there, I feel much more comfortable in a larger tent. Oh, okay. So just because in a bivy, it's so obvious, like this is, this is where the person's head is. This is their feet. If I, I don't know if I want to rob them, I can grab, grab their head. You know, it's just, you yeah. feel really vulnerable. One good kick that's, that's right there. Exactly. And with the bigger, so now I carry a two person tent and when the weather's bad, it gives me a tiny bit of space to move around. And uh, I also feel that slight sense of security with that. Oh, okay. And also when your friends um, visit you or something, like then you can just share the tent and no need for extra I mean, gear. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, like John and I, John's also, I'm, I'm six foot two. John's like a similar height. And we both squeeze into that tent, and it's hilarious. But I mean, for two months in Bolivia, <laughs> we were both in that two-person tent. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, go ahead. I was I was just trying to think of uh, more things that I've learned. I mean, when I set, when I set out on my very first tour, I knew so little about bicycle maintenance. Okay. Uh, yeah, I. I didn't know how to patch a tire well, like it, and I had somebody at a bike shop teach me. Uh, I kept on breaking my chain, and what I do is just put it back together. I didn't know that quick links were a thing, so yeah. I just kept on splicing it together using my little multi tool. And yeah, I mean, I, I've learned a lot about bicycles and bicycle maintenance since then. Okay, nice. So I think yeah, it's um, it's hard to, hard to compare to when you know nothing about bike touring to all of a sudden like thinking back now. Now you've learned so much over the last few years that maybe hard to contrast. What were? Oh, sorry, I wanted to ask you when you decided to cycle Poland to Turkey. That was the the year later you did that tour. Um, was that an original goal, or did you did you already know by then that you're going to cycle Pan America, or was that um, just that was your the original plan, and that came the Pan America thing came later? Man, does that question make sense? Can I restate that? Um, when when you decided to cycle from Poland to Turkey, was that the the goal, or you were building up towards the Pan America? So when I cycled uh, Warsaw to Istanbul. That was my idea of the big tour. I I didn't really know that like, 
so many people were biking longer distances. And, and so what I did is I biked that so during that route. Uh, I just enjoyed it so much. Every, every day was just, I mean, maybe not every day is perfect, but I mean, I really enjoy the touring lifestyle. So even by the time I had reached Istanbul, mm-hmm. I had actually, and I was supposed to book a flight back from Istanbul. I actually found a cheap flight back from Georgia. And so I booked the flight back from Georgia and went and bike toured in Georgia. Nice. So I, I just keep on extending my tour. <laughs> I mean, that's so I, I biked Georgia and then after that, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and then I was able to sneak in the idea of, oh, I'm still in Europe, I should bike Norway. And it's it's just something that keeps on building and building. And when you're touring, you meet people along the road. And I met a really nice couple from the UK, and they were cycling, doing this classic Silk Road route. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke with them about it, it just kind of opened, opened my eyes. And uh, I... During that tour, I decided I would bike South America the next year. Nice. That's awesome. So that's how it built up. Let me ask you, um, not too many people I've spoken to have cycled in Ukraine. So I think it's really awesome that you did. Um, How much time did you spend going through Ukraine? What was your route? Um, What what were the people like? I, I probably spent... A week, five days in Ukraine, okay. just and it was just in the southwestern corner of it. Uh, but that's also a really pretty corner of it because that's where the that's Carpathian, Carpathian Mountains, Mountains right? are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so I cycled cycled from Warsaw to the border, and then to Lviv, and then from Lviv south through. Uh, South through the Carpathian Mountains and then into Romania. Okay. So I didn't spend that much time there, but but it's a country I really really want to go back to. Uh, I had a really nice warm showers host, uh, really incredibly friendly people. It's also one of those countries where you just can't seem to spend money. Like money just. Just doesn't disappear. It's a, it's a good problem to have when you're cycling. Unless you get budget. robbed by the police. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that. But but I remember when I was near the border, I went, and I still had. I think it's called. I think it's. Hrivnia. 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 Yeah. yeah. I still I still had the equivalent of maybe eight U.S. dollars or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I went grocery shopping, and then after grocery shopping, I still had a bunch. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to go get a nice coffee, and I'll get some dranki, which are these wonderful potato mm. pancakes. Ah, okay. And so then I had a nice coffee and potato pancakes, and I still had money left over, and it's just it's a wonderful place. Uh, and people in Ukraine are so happy to see recycle touring in their country and enjoying their country. Oh, nice. That's another thing. It's uh, I was invited for a big, big stew with a family. And, of course, they didn't drink vodka, which I was surprised. But they had shots of cognac and they 
really wanted me to drink a bunch of cognac oh, yeah, with them. I, well, living in Russia, it's always <laughs> vodka and cognac. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and they really, really friendly people. And the one nice thing about Ukraine is that for me was that the language was similar to Polish, which I've, uh, pick, I picked up quite a bit of when I was living in Poland. So. Yeah. And you can communicate with the people a little bit more. Right. But I mean, Ukrainian and Polish are the, those are the two, or Ukrainian is the closest language to Pol- Polish that I've ever experienced. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. I, I struggled to communicate in Ukrainian. Um, I traveled a lot through Ukraine, probably spent a couple months in there. I'm mostly in the east because I had friends working there in the war-torn areas now. But um, in, oh, wow. um, but that was in 2007, so before the before the conflict, and in the Crimea before it was taken by Russia. <laughs> and uh, and then when uh, I did go to Lviv, I met lots of Ukrainians, including some uh, some ancestors in the town that my great grandfather came from. But so hard to communicate in Ukrainian because I just could not quite make out what they were saying half the time. Sure. And, and in some of those countries, uh, English isn't uh, necessarily the second language no. as of yet. But, but people Why, are learning. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt again. <laughs> no. Nope. I was going to ask you, why, why did you go directly into... Um, why didn't you go through Transnistria and Moldova? Ah, you know, that was... My original route I had planned was to go to Moldova and Transnistria, uh, but I realized how many kilometers it would add if oh, I wanted okay. to go because I would have to cross over to Moldova, Transnistria, and then I really wanted to go back through Montenegro and Kosovo and uh, Macedonia, okay. those countries. So it would have added an extra like 2,000 kilometers to go there. Oh, really? But, that much? But actually, huh? I did. I mean, it was it was a little bit too. I with my timeline, it was a little bit too much. Uh, because again, I don't know. I always have weddings to go to after tours, but after this tour, I had to be at a wedding, a Polish wedding again. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but I actually went to Moldova and Transnistria later. Uh, that year, and it's a, those are those are some really interesting places to visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I went through on a train once. Um, I had to deal with. I didn't stop over in Transnistria, so it's on my bucket list. Still hoping to one day. Um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, you spent a, a quite a bit of time through the Balkans, or I don't know how much time you spent, but you spent some time in the Balkans. Um, what was it like? And did you actually master the art of backgammon? Back, <laughs> uh, I I think the Balkans are a wonderful place to bike tour. It's it's such a fun experience when, I mean, just getting to different countries every couple days mm-hmm. if you want. I mean, it's really fun, and the cultures are totally different. Not, I mean, maybe not totally different between the different countries, but definitely some of them are. And yeah, it's a it's a really fun place to tour and. I don't know, bike through seven different countries if you want to. Where did you, what was uh, your route through? So you, you entered from Romania, you went, did you go to Hungary after that and then down into the Balkans or what was the route? Yeah. So I went Ukraine, Romania, Hungary, and then from Hungary, it would be Serbia, 
-hmm. and Serbia to a little bit of Montenegro. Oh, actually, I went through Bosnia Herzegovina mm -hmm. for one day. Oh, okay. And then, just like just cutting through the edge of it or something. Huh? Exactly. Uh, and then into Montenegro. Into said? Montenegro. Mm -hmm. And Kosovo, Macedonia, Bulgaria, and then Istanbul. Okay, so that was the route. Where were you playing backgammon? I saw that picture. It looked great. Uh, it's one of my. I love that game. Uh, Istanbul. Oh, that yeah. was in Istanbul. So I, I got to spend. Yeah. So I spent maybe one week in Istanbul. Uh, my girlfriend at the time flew down and we just enjoyed exploring the city there. And oh, nice. it's an incredible city. Yeah. Nice. And how long, um, so did you, did you just cycle to Istanbul? Did you go anywhere else in Turkey or was it more or less from there? You took a train or something towards Georgia. So I cycled to Istanbul mm -hmm. and then, uh, from Istanbul, I took a bus to Ankara okay. and then from Ankara, I took a 24 hour train ride to Kars, uh, which is in yeah. Eastern Anatolia. Yeah, I see it. I'm pretty near the, pretty near the Georgian border. Mm -hmm. And the, so from there I cycled into Georgia. Oh, okay. So you got a little bit of cycling time in, in, uh, in the East and a little bit in the West of the country. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I mean, I, I would have loved to cycle across the country and I intend to go back and hopefully do it one day. It's just uh, with the time frame of when I needed to be back in Poland, uh, I decided it, it, for me, I wanted to focus on biking around in Georgia. Okay. And, I, and I'm glad I did that. Yeah. How long did you spend in Georgia? Uh, just like two weeks, something like that. Oh, okay. So you actually had a good amount of time there. And uh, what were some of the, the highlights there? Man, Georgia, Georgia is incredible. There are really crazy ruins, uh, pretty near the Turkish border of uh, a monastery that's just cut into the side of a cliff. So I, I really highly recommend that. And okay, I, I'm really sorry. I'm trying. I'm trying to look map here so I can oh, no actually see. And uh, the Wi-Fi is not working. But I seem to have been able to load the map, which is good. I'm sorry, Chris. No, no, don't worry about it. Okay. I've, I've interviewed some guys like in Ecuador where like the internet just kept dropping off and we have to call <laughs> again and like a stitch it all together. I can't imagine, man. Yeah, so you were talking about Georgia? So there are some ruins in Georgia and they, it's an ancient monastery and it's just cut into the side of a cliff and absolutely stunning. One of the coolest things I've seen. Oh, I should mention, okay, back up a second. Near cars in Turkey, before the border, there's even a place I think should be on the seven wonders of the world. It's, there are ruins um ancient ruins it's a old silk road city oh yeah 
and it's a yeah it's it's absolutely incredible and what's it called uh, maybe you know? 40 kilometers it is it'd be like nor- north of cars right it would be it's right on the border with armenia actually but you cannot cross into armenia yeah of course uh akiaka somewhere around there Ani. it's called ani ani it's it's a n i ani it's Ani ruins, yeah, it comes up when you search it. Oh, yeah, okay, so it's a little. Yeah. And they're that awesome. And it's this ancient. Oh, they're they're incredible because it's this place where there have been, where you have the Georgian influence when Georgia was a big empire. Mm -hmm. You also have Armenian, and then you have Russian Russian Orthodox when the Russians came and took it from the Ottomans. So it's this one place with all these crazy giant religious temples in the middle of nowhere today it's nothing but it's but that's a real one of the coolest places out there that i saw nice so yeah a little bit of a detour to go there but worth it huh 100 percent, yeah and then so in georgia there's uh ruins from a monastery uh i mean one of my favorite things i did there was I just was biking up this really small dirt road and some guy in a big land cruiser came and said, follow me. Like you follow me. And so I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, do I follow this guy? Like he didn't say anything, but like, follow me. Like just like, I, I have a farm. You follow me. And like, okay. So I went, <laughs> being, a, being a good child, I followed this stranger to his, uh, <laughs> to his flock of sheep and he it turns out he was he he was i think he was more of a wealthy businessman but he had sheep in the mountains there okay and he's he said oh like he told me like you're gonna stay here he had a shepherd there was a, a nice shepherd guy there and so i ended up staying in this uh old locomotive not a, in this old train car in the Georgian mountains with a shepherd and he didn't speak any English whatsoever. I didn't speak, I spoke, I mean, I don't speak Russian, but I, I we tried, we communicated somehow and had a, had a really fun night hanging out in this, in this tiny old train car. Uh, and I actually got to go with them up and help herd the sheep and oh, they were cool. testing their gums. Yeah. Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race back since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. 
Named after the animals that roamed the Tibetan Plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. Uh, and then I think the there's a bike packing route that goes to Ushkuli, which is one of the, I think it claims to be the tallest or the highest permanently settled town in Europe. Oh, and, yeah? I mean, you can argue if Georgia's in Europe or Asia, but uh, but it's up in the uh, Spanetti Mountains, mm-hmm. and and this route, I think it's I think it's a bikepacking.com route there. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's and it's single track. It's really it's pretty tough, but it's absolutely beautiful and uh, I don't know, really remote, and I, I definitely recommend anybody who goes to that area to to bike bike that route awesome uh, yeah i should uh, i should start when i'm interviewing people is just start saving all these locations on google maps that they talk about <laughs> just, just just star them <laughs> yeah um so how long was it between your the the tour from poland to turkey and um your trip to um, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I think I had two weeks, something, something crazy, like two weeks back home in, in Poland. Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it was basically, I flew back for, for a wedding. Uh, my good friend from university, John Scully flew to Warsaw and we, we flew hung out there for maybe two or three days. And I showed him Warsaw, and then we flew to Kazakhstan. Yeah, I just watched those videos today, so I hadn't actually planned to talk too much about Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, but they're really fresh in my head, and I was like, oh, it looks, it looks so amazing. It looked oh, just amazing. Beautiful place, beautiful people, and I, I don't know if anybody out there is thinking about going, just go. So did you and John do any climbing while you are there too? No, we didn't. It, we, we talked about it a little bit, but that was uh, more of just a mission-oriented bikepacking adventure without with minimal gear and just seeing what we could bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, tell us about the, uh, is it a kefir or the, all the milk products you were drinking over there? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's, so one of the main reasons, actually, I wanted to go to that area of the world uh, is because I I enjoy like fermenting beer. I make kombucha and that sort of thing. I and I don't know. I, I enjoy fermenting things, and I had learned that they ferment milk in uh, in Kyrgyzstan, and it's called kumis, and it's uh, it's a sour milk. It's Maybe anywhere from two percent alcohol, maybe up to four. Oh, okay. And it's kind of yeah. They're, so it's they're like somewhere between beer. Canadian and American beer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, 
And and I mean, this is it. Basically, Kumis is what allowed Genghis Khan. I mean, it depends on who you ask, but it's what allowed Genghis Khan to be able to conquer so much of the world because they didn't need supply lines for their food. They could just drink this Kumis. It wouldn't spoil and they milk their horses. So it's like, I don't know, like a lot of history says Kumis was what helped Genghis Khan be as oh, wow. uh, effective as he was. And instead, and you don't yeah. have to carry alcohol either and just get a little bit of uh, fermented. <laughs> yeah, just catch a nice buzz off of milk. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So yeah. uh, how was it? Was it good? You know, at first, it's really, really funky. And I met a lot of people who didn't like it. But I, I really enjoy it. I think if you enjoy kind of something that has a little bit more of that funky taste, like a kefir, I think it's, it's really refreshing, especially after you've been cycling all day long. Yeah, I was thinking and, if you don't like it and you bike like 100 kilometers in, in the mountains and heat and stuff, then you might like it by the end of that day or two. 100%, yeah. <laughs> and, and the cool thing is, is that in Kyrgyzstan and, and Kazakhstan as well, uh, there are just, there are yurts everywhere. Even when you're, well, aren't yurts everywhere, but when you're really remote, oftentimes there's a shepherd and you can find a yurt. And if you go up to that yurt often enough, you can ask them for either kumis, uh, and they also have a, more of a yogurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more similar, directly similar to a kefir. Oh, it's called Iran. Uh, oh, yeah, I saw that name. I yeah. thought it was funny because my wife's from Iran. And <laughs> I was like, it's called Iran. Yeah, and you, and you can find Iran anywhere where the Ottoman Empire has been. So that's uh, even in the Balkans, you can get Iran as far north as Serbia. Uh, and, in, and in Turkey, they drink lots of Iran. It's, it's different. So it's a thicker yogurty type drink, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit thicker, and and they also make a butter from it, so you can get this really good kind of a ghee. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if if you like milk products and dairy, it's uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan are a good place. Oh, to that's go. cool. Now, how long do these things last in the heat of the day and whatnot? I think the kumis would last a long time. Maybe it gets a little bit stronger, but I don't think it's going to spoil because of the alcohol. Okay. That's cool. Like maybe it just gets a little bit more fizz when you open it the second time. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that fussy of an eater for it. So. And so you actually, before you started the Pan America, shortly after Central Asia, you, you went and cycled up to Nordcap, right? Yeah. I spent, spent about a month in Norway uh, because there are super cheap flights from Gdansk, Poland mm-hmm. on Wizz Air to Tromso. Yeah, yeah. I had a guest talking about that exactly. Um, Nima, he was talking about how he caught the flight from Tromso down to Gdansk. Yeah. And so, so I flew there and there are some beautiful islands. I want to say they're called the Lofton Islands. And so I cycled around those islands and then I actually flew there because I really wanted to cycle to a place called Hammerfest. Just because uh, of the name or? 100% because of the name. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah. I, so, so the if only it was called Hammer Time, month, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have cycled there for that too. <laughs> but, but my uh, my brother-in-law plays hockey in Europe. Okay. And and so I was visiting my sister and him in Finland one year. And my sister and I decided to do a road trip and I saw Hammerfest on the map and I said, we need to go to Hammerfest. And we ended up realizing it was so far away from where we were, mm-hmm. but I made a mental note and I, and started on a, on a map, <laughs> like we we're talking about earlier, like I'm going to go to Hammerfest someday. <laughs> and and so from Tromso, I was cycling to Hammerfest. We're actually around the Lufton, around the islands. And I met Europeans who were cycling there. And they were all going to Nordkop. And I did not know what Nordkop was at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, so you actually didn't even yeah. know about Nordkop at that time, huh? I, I did not. And embarrassingly so. But I guess being from North America, I mean, maybe it's not such a big thing for us. And, uh, so I, I met these guys and they all said, Oh, we're going to Nordkop. I looked on the map. Well, Nordkop sounds pretty cool. I guess I'll bike there too. And so I biked to Nordkop and then to actually complete my goal of going to Hammerfest, cycled back down into Hammerfest. When, when, um, when cycling to Hammerfest from Tromso, did you follow the E6 or are there roads going and like, did you take roads and ferries and stuff through all the island chain uh i think when i went from tromso to hammerfest i didn't take any ferries okay ah no that's not true i took there were a couple ferries yep uh yeah so there so cycling in norway especially along the coast you you almost have to take ferries or else oh, okay maybe some maybe sometimes there are alternative routes but mm-hmm. Alternative routes would be so long around some of those huge fjords. And I think I saw also that you you posted that there's actually a point further north than North Cape, but it's only a hikeable, right? Yeah. So and there's a place I can't remember how to say it in Norwegian. It's like Knuvens Noodle or something. It means knife rocks, I think. Okay. In English. And Knif- yeah, I see it. I see to- it. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. But... So you could hike over there, isn't and, it? And where did you find the trail? Yeah. So, yeah. So I biked to Nordkop, and then that's also a really nice place to camp if you're going to Nordkop, mm-hmm. uh, the trailhead for that hike. And then, yeah, I just hike. hike. It's not very much further north. If you want to go to the furthest north north point, it's it's a fun thing to know about. Good to know. Good to know. Um, Nordcap is on my list. I would have been there this summer, but then everything kind of went to shit. Oh, man. All right, let's that talk sucks. about Pan America. You um, you said when you met this couple and they were talking about cycling uh, the Silk Road, and then that kind of got you thinking about places to go and really experience, and so you decided to do the Pan America, I guess? Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it got me excited about this idea of doing Ushuaia to Alaska, and why why oh, south to north and not north to south? I mean, not that there has to be a really good reason for that. 
Sure. I mean, the the common, I mean, not the common thought because it's true. The prevailing winds in Tierra del Fuego are just awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are going north, but I really wanted to leave at a time frame, and so if I wanted to leave uh, in the northern hemisphere's winter of of 2019. That's what made the most sense was time wise was just for right. me to start in the south. Yeah, if you're starting north, it'd have been like dead horse at middle of January would not have been a good place to start cycling from. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And I mean, for the majority of the continent, like the the prevailing winds aren't great one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really just for that Tierra del Fuego section. If you're going south, I mean, you could get pushed. And just fly, but if you're going north, it's it's going to be, I mean, definitely weeks of suffering. <laughs> I, I can say from experience. <laughs> what uh, what was the, what is the fin the fin del mundo bikepacking route? So, uh, that is a route that's on bikepacking.com. Okay, and. So it starts in Ushuaia, and there's a main road that goes out of Ushuaia. And instead of taking that main route, you stick more along the, I believe that's the Strait of Magellan. And uh, you stick really close to the coast, and it's a single track and a hike-a-bike, or a little bit of hike-a-bike uh, out of Ushuaia. And it goes north, jumps on the road, jumps on on pavement for a little bit. Uh, but it really sticks to the off-road uh, off-road paths around there. Ah, oh, okay. And how long? Uh, how far does it go? Ah, uh, it goes it goes all the way up to Porvenir, uh, which is where you take take a ferry, or the majority of people take a ferry to Punta Arenas. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. Uh, it. Yeah. So instead of instead of taking the route three or any of the paved routes, it goes more inland and mm-hmm. takes you through the Pampa and it's all, all dirt road touring. Oh, okay. Nice. And does it kind of crisscross across the borders as you go or is it, uh, yeah. So from Tulhin, it goes to, it crosses into Chile mm-hmm. and then you spend, I guess all the rest of the time in, in Chile to Porvenir. Okay. That's a yeah. weird little chunk of Argentina down there. Huh? It's just like separated completely from the rest of the country. Just the way the borders yeah, are. Yeah, it really is. Okay. And um, so you cycled that. The wind, you said the wind was really tough. It was, it was absolutely brutal. Uh, in a, One of the reasons why I wanted to cycle that route is because it takes you to Parque Pinguino Rey, like a king king penguin park okay so you actually get to see penguins because you're so far south and i spoke with the lady there and she said the penguins weren't doing very much because it was so windy and i guess the wind was even worse than it normally normally is when i was there oh wow yeah it was it was a tough point of my trip and at that at that point in my trip, I hadn't decided whether or not I wanted to use motorized overland transport. Occasionally, take buses, 
I mean, there's there's no right or wrong way to do a tour. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, when I, I've, I've taken trains. When I took a train across Georgia just because I wanted to get started on a, on a harder route more quickly and didn't have time. And during, during that time period, biking into the wind for, I mean, a couple weeks on end, I was, I almost took up cars. Like, I was really, really close. Oh, wow. To just getting, hitching a ride, but I don't know. What is the Karatara Austral? I know I've, I've heard people speak of it um, with reverence. It's almost like the holy land of cycling or something. Where where exactly is it, and how long is it, and whatnot? So it is in uh, it is in Patagonia, Chile. It starts uh, so there's the Fitzroy. It's in uh, El Shelten, Argentina, mm-hmm. and from there you take you cycle a little bit. And you can either take a ferry or do a bike packing route around one small lake. And then you can take a boat across Lago O'Higgins. And so it starts in O'Higgins, Chile, pretty far south. And it goes all the way up to Puerto Mont, uh, Chile. And it's the majority of, majority of it is unpaved. Okay. And it's it's widely regarded as the ultimate like bike packing or just a bike touring route, I think. Oh, okay. And it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. Uh, but I think there are a lot of people who go there just to do that route. And so you see lots of other cyclists, which is, which is fun. Like that was one of the few places uh, of my trip where I ran into Multiple cyclists, AD. Okay. And how long did it take you to cycle the Karataras Austro? Uh, I think it took me probably a little bit less than a month. Uh, I ended it. I didn't end in Porto Mont. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people that Porto Mont is not that great of a city. <laughs> and so I actually went, I started going right toward, or Right, going east uh, along a little fjord there, and there's a place called Cochamo, which is uh, often called the Yosemite of Chile. It's a it's a national park. It isn't super well known, except for climbers know it, and it's it's really really beautiful. So I I went there and did some hiking. Where was that again? It's it's called Cochamo. Cochamo. Uh, Cochamo. C C O C H A M O. Okay. Oh yeah, Cochamo. so not too not too <laughs> not too far from uh, not too far from Puerto Montt, huh? No, and I I mean even I think that section of road I skipped is paved, and the Cochamo road it's really kind of rough. So yeah. Oh okay. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, for social cycling, the the Carretera Austral would be also a great place to go as a single cyclist, and you could meet a group of people and bike with them. And I ended up cycling in a group of maybe five people for at least half of it, which was really fun, and people from all over the world. 
Okay. And you said that at like the the lake that you bike packed, you did a bike packing bypass for rather than take a ferry. That was near the start of the Karatar Ostra, was it, or was that further else? Yeah. So after El Shelten, and we're fit where the Fitzroy ranges. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one ferry that goes around. La, I believe the lago is Lago de, lago de Desierto, something like that. Okay. And so there's a little bike packing, there's a little hiking bypass, and you can also bike pack it. Uh, and so while I was in El Shelten, I, I met some people and made some friends, and they were taking the ferry, already had their tickets booked. So I, uh, I biked with them to the ferry launch point and just gave them my paneers, and then... <laughs> Then did the bike packing section, and uh, I reached. I definitely reached camp a little bit later than them, but it, mm-hmm. but it was fun, and I got to do a, a nice little single track. So it's not it's not a very big lake, right? So it was just an extra little distance kind of thing. Yeah, I mean it's not a huge lake, but the, I mean the thing is that the ferries there are really expensive. So well, I mean it depends on your budget, but I try to travel pretty cheap. Yeah. And so I, I don't know how much I saved, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was thirty or forty dollars at least. Oh, okay. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're, you're traveling kind of cheap. What do you What do you kind of budget into your daily budget? What is your daily budget? I try to cycle on ten dollars a day, and that that's including everything. And I think. Uh, I think for most of South America, that's very doable. E, like I, for me, it seems fairly easy. Uh, I I'm not constantly checking to see how much I'm spending. I just kind of try to keep a mental note. But mm-hmm. I even checked for Ecuador when I was in Ecuador. I was a little bit worried. Oh, it seems like it's a fairly expensive country. Things are in U.S. dollars, and while I was there, I even took a side trip to Galapagos just because there were cheap flights. Yeah, I saw that. And yeah, nice. But even with that side trip, it was only fifteen dollars a day. So it's oh, okay. I don't know. It's yeah. And I, I mean, I guess part not, of that too is too like bad. if you're setting a ten dollar a day budget, once you get into U.S. and Canada, you're going to be having to be a lot more careful, I guess. Huh? Right. Totally. And. Yeah, I mean it's it just it depends. Like if you're using warm showers and not staying in hotels, and you're only spending money on food, that's I think it's fairly easy to do. Not, yeah. Do not spend that much money. Do you make money at all while you're touring? I know uh, some people so actually, run run little businesses or do things like that. Right, and I uh, late in my tour, I ended up launching a Patreon website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was actually, before this all happened, COVID and stuff, I, now I've paused my Patreon, but uh, just with Patreon alone, I was able to finance most of my expenses, which which is awesome. And Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. And just some yeah, good people and, supporting you. Yeah, wonderful people. And I mean, if people support me at a certain amount, I'll send them a postcard every month. And I don't know, just... Just give them little perks that maybe mm-hmm. uh, not everybody receives. Yeah, and you're creating videos as well, right? So that's 
part of the, the what you're putting out towards the project, yeah? Yeah, I, I put quite a bit of time into YouTube and trying to film the trip, but uh, YouTube money is not not that great as of yet. But no. Maybe someday. Yeah, I don't think it ever gets really great unless you're <laughs> you're playing with toys and people are buying products that you're playing with, kind of thing. Sure. Um, the Puna de Atacama, you cycled that during winter. What was that like? It was cold. <laughs> yeah, what did the temperature get down to? Uh, uh, I don't. I didn't have a thermometer or anything, but it was cold enough that all my water bottles would freeze inside my tent. Oh every yeah. Night. Did you keep and them in your sleeping bag or? I did, but but any water bottle that was outside my sleeping bag would be frozen solid. Oh wow! Or like a forgotten water bottle. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was, is for almost all my trip before Bolivia, I was traveling with a really lightweight, cheap sleeping bag. I think it's just, uh, it's, it's fairly decent quality. I think it's synthetic, uh, synthetic down, mm -hmm. but, and it's one of the, it's a decathlon sleeping bag too. And it was... It was rated, I, I want to say it's 20, 20 degrees Celsius uh, comfort and mm -hmm. 15 Celsius minimum. Or it's, it's, any, it's, a, it's a summer sleeping bag. <laughs> and I made it across the Puna with that, but I also bought a fleece blanket and would stuff that inside my sleeping bag every night. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, as, as well as feeding... Um, all quite a bit of it. I was carrying 12 liters of water, sometimes more. And I made a point to just carry lots of fuel. And every single night I would boil all my water and stick that inside my tent, inside my sleeping bag, just to keep me warm. Oh, wow. So we're talking like minus 10 or possibly worse. Uh, minus 10 Celsius. Yeah. Celsius. I would have to try. I I still do lots of tens. I would say so, definitely, yeah. definitely. Wow. Ten Celsius, low low teens, I guess Fahrenheit or zero, close to zero. What was the uh, what was the terrain like up in the Puna de Atacama? It varies quite a bit. Uh, it's lots of it is really loose. Uh, some sandy sections. And then, but there's some really, really cool uh, rock formations and stuff. So one area I was cycling in was basically concrete, like just really, really strange, almost like sculptures. The rocks go up in all sorts of different shapes. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, and you just cycle this. It looks like it should be sand from a distance, but but it's just like concrete. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And that was one of the coolest places I've cycled, like just going over these little humps and it was all downhill for maybe 15 kilometers or something like that on this weird wavy concrete, like <laughs> really interesting. Is that the one you made a little video about? Uh, it, it's really close to, 
are you t- are you talking about the drone video in some yeah dunes? yeah oh that is that was really nearby okay um, so that was still really sandy and soft and it was really interesting riding because it was also the first time in my tour when I went over 4,000 meters and I found myself up at 4,000 meters late in the day mm-hmm. with the sun going down and it was starting to get really, really cold. And, and it's a desert, right? So there's spike. like, it's brutal at night. Yeah. I mean, it just gets cold quick. What, what happened was I was up at the top of this pass and I went into a little bit of shadow and all of a sudden I just started freezing. I was like, oh my God, as soon as the sun goes down, I'm going to freeze. I need to get off of here ASAP. Okay. And so I started cycling down, but the thing was, is it was so soft that I had to push my bike down. I couldn't even bike off this mountain. And but if I got enough speed, I could continuously go. But as soon as I lost speed, I would sink in and there was no chance. So it was a really, really interesting and not so stressful, but a little bit uh, dynamic getting off of that mountain. And did you just and set the drone to follow that, you or what? Well, and so that was actually the next morning after oh, I okay. uh, come down to like a reasonable altitude and, and survived the night. I, but uh, but yeah, and so it, that video was in that area, and it was a little bit harder where that was, but yeah, just really interesting, soft, like moon dust almost. I think, okay. I guess as soon as you get through the sand, it's just this fine, fine powder, really weird. And I think I saw at one point, I, I think I saw that you mentioned you lowered the air pressure in your tires just to get them to flatten out a bit more so you can get just a better grip, yeah? Yeah, at, I mean, at that point, I was I was still tubeless. I I go between having tubes and running tubeless, and at that point I was tubeless, and I just ran as low of pressure as I could. I mean, basically, bottoming out on my rims every once in a while. Not I mean, pretty frequently, just to be able to get over that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just I, I'm running. I think I was running probably like two point three inch tires too. So. Okay, so you got them pretty wide too, yeah. What do you? What are the benefits, pros, cons of tubeless or not going tubeless, and uh, why do you keep switching back and forth? If I could bike all the time tubeless, I would. <laughs> that's a, that's the thing. Okay, so uh, yeah, the the cons of tubeless are that eventually, I mean, eventually you you'll lose tubeless. And you won't be tubeless anymore. And then you have to put a tube in. Ah, okay. Um, so until so, you have a chance I mean, to, to really fix it or get some new um, new tubeless sealant and stuff and top that up, then you're just going to end up having tubes at some point, right? Correct. And But the benefits of tubeless is, are, is you can bottom out on your tire and you won't get a pinch flat because you don't have a tube in there. Right. And so it allows you to run incredibly low tire pressure. Uh, yeah, I've never well I've, as, I've never used it, but I've been um, I'm going to be switching up my new bike to tubeless setup. And I was even thinking about my mountain bike, depending how much I get out there mountain biking this year, because I'm living right on the uh, edge of a national park. So I, I I highly recommend it on the mountain bike. The feeling between tubes and tubeless is 
is different. And it's it's really a nice feeling running lower pressures on tubeless. Okay, cool. I'll check it out. I'll try it out. Uh, and and uh, the third, other than, so ride enjoyment, and then there's no pinch flats. And then the third thing I would say is for punctures, if you're riding in a, a desert area with lots of storms, uh, with a tubeless, it will self-seal and you won't have to deal with those thorns. Yeah, I've heard about that, especially uh, in like um, Baja, California, um, like Mexico. You, there's so many thorns, you really want to be tubeless there. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and parts of Argentina too, if you're, if you're running tubes, you might, after you leave camp in the morning, like I had days where I had five punctures with tubes and it was just, just not enjoyable. That's just a bad start to a day. Oh, wow. <laughs> tell us, uh, yeah. tell us about riding Bolivia. You said you spent about two months there with your, your buddy, John doing a crazy bike, hikes and hike a bikes or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So John, uh, yeah, I biked with John in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. And on this tour, basically, I told him, hey, man, you have an open invitation uh, anytime you want to come. Like, open arms, let's do it. And uh, so he took me up and we went to Bolivia, started in, we met up in San Pedro de Atacama, Mm -hmm. Chile, and cycled up into Bolivia. Uh, Oh, okay. First thing is John brought me way too many pounds of gear but it was because we wanted to do some mountaineering in bolivia and we decided we would do mountaineering off of our bicycles okay uh yeah and so i ended up putting mounting a front rack to my bike and running a four pannier setup yeah because i saw traditionally you run like you run rear panniers and then more of a bike packing setup on the the rest of the bike right Correct. Yeah, I've heard people call it just like a bike packing hybrid setup. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's what works for me for long touring. Okay. Um, I can keep keep all my gear and have some comfort. I don't know. I I feel like it's hard to go out of a pure bike packing setup for I mean a year or longer. But, I mean, people do it. So. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it own. depends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, it looks like a good setup. I mean, I can't, I can't fault it. Um, I think if I had a mountain <laughs> bike, I would probably do something similar using smaller panniers on the back and, um, and the frame bag and stuff. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think when I go back on tour, I'm going to switch it up a little bit, but we'll see. Yeah. Exactly what are you, what what are you thinking? Ah, uh, man, I've, so I carry some, like I carry quite a bit of electronics with me just to film mm-hmm. and to even edit while I'm riding. So I carry a laptop and drone cameras, way too many electronics. So it's hard for me to ever go too small. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially for Central America, where I don't have to worry about freezing, I could get by with maybe just a backpack on the back rack. Okay. Yeah, def- definitely slimming it down. It's all about getting a little bit lighter weight. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, so I'm um, talking about Bolivia. Sorry, back to your story. Oh. Ah, no worries. 
So John and I uh, both put four paneer set it, setups on our bicycles, loaded up with a bunch of food, set out from San Pedro de Atacama, and biked up to the border with uh, Chile and Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that border crossing, I want to hmm, I think it's at 4,800 meters where that border point checkpoint is. Really? Huh? And yeah, and we we showed up there and it started, there, it was a snowstorm and it was really, really windy. And I think it, it probably had taken us a day and a half to actually bike up to that point because San Pedro is around 700 meters and you have to get up to, like I said, I think it's, or, oh no, okay, it's 4,600 or something. Anyway, it's it's a ridiculously high. And we biked up to the Carabinos, which is what the police and border patrol are called in Chile. Mm-hmm. And the guys told us, turn around, go back, you can't stay here, because the uh, border would open the next day. And, and like, we're not going to turn around and bike back down. Like we we spent one day or more just getting to this point. Like mm-hmm. we're gonna camp outside, and it was freezing cold, obviously. And this is when uh, so this border crossing is like directly east of San Pedro de Atacama, right? And then yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, that's the one. Yeah, I'm looking at it. it's like a it's like a it's like a donkey cart trail to get up to the the Bolivian side, and then it looks like a proper road on the Bolivian side. Yeah, I actually took the road from, so the road that goes from Argentina, that road goes up to 4,800 meters, but it's paved. And I had ridden that a week before. Mm. And then when I met up with John, we had to go back up and take a left turn to go into Bolivia. Right, yeah. But, yeah, but anyways, some friendly young police officers ended up inviting us in to camp uh, inside the building and uh, gave us tea and some soup. So really, really nice people. And I think the I th- I think those guys were the police, and the other guys were the border patrol. Oh, okay. So the border patrol was a, a little bit salty that the police were helping us out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so John and I biked from there uh, with our first objective being uh, climbing uh, Volcan Uturumpu which is actually the, well, it's a 6,000 meter volcano. And it actually has the highest road in the world too. So it's the highest point in the world that you can cycle to, I believe. And, it, really? and that point is, yeah, it's crazy. What's the name uh, of that volcano? So you can, it's called Uturunku. It's U-T-U-R-U-N-C-U. <laughs> Utarunku. Okay, I see it. I'm not saying I'm going to climb it, but I see it. (laughs) (laughs) How long? uh, So you guys, you were able to get as high as uh, the end of the road and then you had to hike the rest of the way, yeah? Yeah, so, I mean, and even the route there from the Chilean border was, I mean, a crazy, incredibly soft sand, like, Lots of hike a bike, and uh, we 
we camped at an abandoned military camp in like in the mountains there in Bolivia, which was really strange. Uh, the Bolivian military showed up <laughs> to check on us, and I was a little bit worried. Uh, and they they came to us when we were staying at this, like I said, an abandoned military camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, I, and my, John was trying to speak with them, and he, his Spanish wasn't that great at the time. And I come out, and I'm like, "What is going on?" And we explained to them, "All right, we're just biking. We're trying to go over here." And they just came, checked on us wanted to make sure we weren't doing anything bad and then just said, good luck and left us there, which was, I, I don't know how many places where you'd be camping inside a old military place and they just say, Oh, be safe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, but so we, uh, so back to Untarunku. So after maybe five days of cycling, we got to a small town outside of Untarunku. Yeah. Uh, and we dro- dropped off some gear, and we were able to cycle up to five, like five thousand eight hundred meters, which is me five thousand. That's that's high. <laughs> that's close. Yeah, I mean it's nineteen thousand, close to nineteen thousand feet. Yeah, and and then we're able to hike the rest of the way up to the summit. Yeah. So and, it wasn't too far a hike to go from the top of the biking part to the summit no it's really short okay interesting because you've already done most of the most of the trail and i mean that's also commonly called one of the easiest six thousand meter peaks to climb so okay because because you have a road up there some people drive pretty far up and then just jump out of the truck and and hike the rest of the way Nice. Did you have to have a, you didn't have a guide or anything either, did you? Uh, we did not have a guide. I think if we would have made, would have made it known that like that we were climbing it, wanted to climb it mm-hmm. in the town, then maybe we would have needed a guide. But we saw, we passed what, maybe one truck that was driving clients up on the mountain and the guide just waved to us. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are they going to do, right? They're going to, are they going to get on a bike and follow you? Like, (laughs) exactly. No, I I think if they see that you're trying to climb it on a bicycle, they just let you do it. (laughs) Wow. And, um, how did you secure your gear when you guys were climbing? So I'm assuming you didn't leave everything. Like if you left stuff behind, did you take a bag of valuable stuff with you or like your laptop and drone and all that stuff? Um, so for Unterumpo, uh, we left quite a bit of gear in the town, mm-hmm. uh, just at a fa- small little family, family, I don't know, hostel. And, and then when we climbed, we, we actually camped at some ungodly height too. We camped over 5,000 meters and then left most of our gear in that camp, okay. biked from the camp up to the summit and then biked back down. Uh, what kind um, of what kind of camp okay. stove do you use? Uh, right now I'm using a Whisperlite MSR Whisperlite. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did have a Pri- Primus Omni Fuel, but I ended up having issues with that. So. Okay. Yeah, I was yeah. just wondering if because okay. uh, I know not all not all stoves work well at elevation, so. Uh, I mean, at that point, the Primus Omni Fuel was working great at elevation. 
Uh, I've also used the whisper light uh, at over 4,000 meters, and that works great too. Awesome. Okay, so uh, bye-bye, Untaruku. And, um, oh, oh, sorry, you're Chris, going. Can I, uh, yeah, sorry. My yeah, bad. And, and w- one more thing about like leading valuables is, I mean, we just stash valuables on these mountains because the remoteness of these places is so ridiculous. Nobody is there for miles. Ah, it's, okay. it's just really, really remote. The chances of somebody stumbling over your gear and then actually taking it is just not going to happen. Okay. Did you um, did you guys ever experience any problems in Bolivia? I know, like I've heard that people tend seem to have bad luck getting robbed or stuff stolen from themselves in Bolivia. Did you guys ever have any problems? I we did not. No. Uh, the yeah, I'm I'm trying to think if there were any bad experiences with something like that. No, I mean. I've heard that people have problems in La Paz and in, in the cities. And we really didn't go into the cities until we got to La Paz. We were, we were really remote and just going through tiny, tiny villages mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah. So just kind yeah. of avoiding anywhere where you'd have problems. Yeah. But I mean, even my, even my experience in the city was that people were really friendly. So okay. I, yeah, I, I definitely didn't get that vibe from Bolivia. Do you have a favorite country in the region? Um, and Or countries, maybe for different reasons, and what were the reasons for them? Sure. And, and yeah, it, it's really it's a really hard question. Uh, are you, and do you want to uh, focus on South America? Or? Um, yeah, I think let's, yeah, let's focus it on South America. Okay. I think in South America, ah, man, it's so tough. <laughs> okay, I'll start with the country for the people, like, and just having crazy friendly people. I would say Colombia. Like, there's a, there's a way of life in Colombia, and people there are always welcoming, always want to talk, and it's just so different. It's uh, when people talk about Turkey and Iran, mm-hmm. or Iran for uh, how friendly people are there, yeah. I imagine that's how Colombia is. Like, Colombia is a place where you can cycle, and if at the end of the day you don't have to have anything planned, you can either count on being able to find posts via warm showers, uh, or just asking somebody if you're able to camp near their house and you're always going to get a yes. Just, oh, okay. Yeah. Really magical like that. Um, and then as far as like for just remoteness and just, I don't know, crazy scenery, I would have to say, uh, I can't. I can't really decide whether or not Bolivia or Peru, mm-hmm. but the but the kind of the southern region of Peru. Ah, but I mean, even the north is incredible too. It's, <laughs> ah, it's it's so hard. But, but the the Andes Mountains in in those two countries are just absolutely incredible. People living 
uh, like they have for hundreds of years. I mean, still tilling fields with with animals. I, and then when you stop into some of these small towns, you can speak with a like an eight year old guy, mm-hmm. and just. I don't know, get his perspective on life, and it's really, really incredible. Like, I remember speaking with a guy, I mean, well, maybe two separate guys, but one guy, Peruvian guy telling me, like, oh, Peruvians are pretty nice. We're just a little bit short. And it's like, I don't know. They're just, they're such genuinely nice people. And I mean, another, like, some of these people have been living in these tiny villages, and they don't see many tourists. And when they see somebody who shows up on a bicycle is excited, a little bit excited about learning about the culture, uh, they light up and they, they share what they know. It's okay. Just, yeah. I, I, I guess I didn't answer the question at well, all. You, yeah. I, well, I don't know if you did. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like the people too. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, really hard. Okay. I, but you said, like you said, the scenery and the, just the, the Andes in that region and, you know, it ties in with the people, of course, too, because maybe nature creates the people, right? Yeah, I mean, Bolivia, just for, if you're in the Altiplano of Bolivia, which is just this area that I don't know if it goes below 3,000 meters, like, for most of the time we were cycling at above 3,000 meters, and... And that whole area is just, is incredible. So I'll, I'll say Bolivia, how about that? Just for how unique it is. Okay. And what else? So you got the people, the nature. How about food? Favorite food? Or? Yeah, what country has the best food? Uh, I th- I'd say my, my favorite food is from Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And they have a fish soup. It's called encebollado. And it's, it's so awesome. It's uh, a fish stew and it's cooked with onions and you actually put popcorn and fried platanos on uh-huh. top and, and it, it's really, really good. Every time, once I found it, I tried to have it for every lunch. <laughs> okay. Where would you like to go explore if you had some more time in South America? Mm-hmm. I act like the place that I have the most uh, bike like routes that I didn't do that I want to go back and do. Mm-hmm. I would say, I would say Argentina. There are there's so many cool routes between on the border of Argentina, Argentina and Chile mm-hmm. that I I definitely have some more places to go back. To. Okay. Um, what it, it seems like a lot of people don't actually go and spend much time in Brazil bike touring. Why do you think that is? Mm, I really don't know. Uh, I, maybe, I definitely maybe want it's just to go too to big Brazil a country. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's one thing. It's huge. It's really populated. I, I think it's, but I, definitely there are regions that aren't populated. I've spoken to friends who have traveled along the coast, not cycling. And they've said if you wanted to cycle along the coast, it would be pretty hectic with traffic. But it's, I mean, it's definitely on my list of places I want to go okay. go and cycle and experience the culture. Uh, on that note, 
all the Brazilians I've met while cycling have been some of the friendliest people. So mm. I think it would be a really good experience uh, in terms of meeting people and experiencing the culture. Okay. And, um, and you speak quite a lot of Spanish now after over a year in South America? I've been losing it after a month back home, but yeah, I, I could have a nice conversation and get, yeah, stay with people who didn't speak English and that sort of thing. Okay. It, it was fun. I, I tried to, at the beginning of my trip, I would try to do one hour of Spanish every single day. And that's, that's really hard to maintain, but, uh, but yeah, it's, but if you learn Spanish, it's really worth it because there are so many places that people do not speak English. Yeah. 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 If you know, uh, I think Spanish is a good, good language to know. Maybe everybody should know English, Spanish, Russian, and French, and you could probably go almost anywhere in the world. Yeah. Except for China, maybe. But. Yeah. Maybe China too. Chinese. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, what I was going to ask you if you could give three tips to someone considering cycling in Pan America region, what would you, what would you give them or what would you tell them? I mean, first tip I give anybody who's thinking about touring is just, just go. Like, I think the biggest thing is just, just get out there and do it and figure out things as you're cycling. So <laughs> that's kind of cheating, but does that count as one? Sure. That is one. <laughs> Okay, so just get out there and cycle, and then two other things. Uh, oh, okay, a big one for South America, I would say, is start being aware of Casa de Ciclistas. Mm -hmm. And uh, Casa de Ciclistas are places that have been around in, sometimes for more than 20 years, and they're places where any cyclist can show up and stay for free. And I think the Casa de Ciclistas model, I think, is only a thing in South America, but it's a wonderful place to go. You meet other cyclists. You can trade information on routes. And, uh, I mean, if you're cycling alone, it's a nice place to go socialize with other travelers. I mean, it's all cycle travelers, which is cool. But just kind of really good community spaces. Okay, nice. And um, are these run by an organization, or are they a government thing, or how are they set up? They're all independent, just run by the owner. So it's, I think probably there's. I know one of the earliest ones is near Quito, mm -hmm. uh, run by Santiago. Really, really nice guy, and he's been running that one for over twenty years. So I think by word of mouth. Maybe people who are interested in hosting cyclists eventually just said, hey, we're just going to do an open door policy. Uh, so I, it's they're totally independent from each other. Uh, maybe some of the owners are in communication with each other, but there's it's more of a word of mouth thing. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I should set one up here. I live right on the edge of a national park. I should set up the first Canadian Casa <laughs> de Ciclista. <laughs> That'd be awesome. What's your last piece of advice? Uh, <laughs> I can think of so much advice you've already given today. So if you can't think of one, I can give you. A yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, 
I would say just get off of the main roads in in South America. I mean, maybe maybe cycle a lot of the main roads, but it seems like once you get into those spaces where you don't see any tourists, um, I mean, and maybe they're much harder to get to. The rewards, every single time mm-hmm. I find myself doing the really hard routes, it's it's always worth it. The, the rewards uh, outnumber the pain by far and yeah, and and just the people you'll meet out there. Like when you're when you're not on a tourist route, you you just meet incredible people. And I think that's kind of the reason why people like cycle touring in general yeah. is because you're forced to go to those places, but so do you think for that I mean, just, do you think for that it's necessary to have a more of a bike packing type bike like a more of a an off-road capable bike than your typical touring bike? I think I would not recommend skinny tires for central or for South America and mm-hmm. Central America. That okay, that could be a, that can be my real first piece of advice. Okay. Don't ride skinny tires because even the paved roads are rough. Uh and the gravel roads vary from okay to just bone chattering. So. And by skinny tires, you yeah. mean like anything like not like a road bike, right? Like, but like uh, something like a I don't know, um, surly long haul trucker. Do you consider those like skinny tires ish, or should look for beefier? I mean, I think you can fit two point two inch tires on a long haul trucker, right? I don't know. I don't know what you can fit up to. I didn't think you could fit that big of tire. Huh. Oh, I, I mean, a lot of those touring bikes now they're made so they that's can true. Fit the newest, barely. the newest models might be able to, yeah. Right, and and so I would say, when you're gonna bike there, don't let your bike hold you back. And if you can only afford the bike you have and it can't hold two inch tires, great, just go there and and you'll figure it out. Right. But I think if you're looking at a bike specifically for South America, I would get something that can hold at least two inch tires. Uh, my bike, I can push 2.4, 2.5 inch tires. And I really wish I could put three inch tires on there. Okay. Yeah. And the likes of a uh, Tristan Ridley, right? I think he rides three inches and he's, he's been taking some pretty epic off-road exploration routes. Yeah. I, th- I think he rides a ECR, uh, Surly, mm-hmm. Surly Salsa ECR and, yeah, that's a that's a good bike. I that'd be the perfect bike for South America. Okay, good advice. Was there any more? Is that it? I think that was it. <laughs> cool. Is there anything else you want to share with us today? I mean, I could talk about more of the mountaineering we did because we climbed with the Runku. Yeah. But actually, later on my trip, I've gone and climbed. Uh, I've climbed a total of five, 6,000 meter peaks. Wow. Uh, with the bicycle, which with the Runku was the first one, but we actually were able to summit. Well, I, I was able to get on the summit of the tallest peak in Bolivia, which that, I don't know, that was a proud moment uh, doing that all by bicycle. And how high was it? Hmm, so, uh, uh, I was able to get up Sahama, which is uh, 6,500 500 meters tall. So that's 
21,500 feet. It's, it's a giant. And uh, when we were cycling to it, you can see it for miles. I see it for miles and miles. Yeah. And that's an intimidating thing, cycling towards a giant volcano, knowing you intend to climb it. But, uh, yeah, I was just looking at a picture of it now. It's, it's pretty massive. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's taller than any mountain in North America, which is crazy to think about. Uh, wow. But yeah. And so, how, how high did the roads go up um, before you had to start hiking? Hmm, I think base camp. Base camp for Sahama is probably at like 4,500 meters. So, but you cannot cycle up to base camp. So that's even a hike in. So we cycled probably to, I don't know, 4,000, somewhere 4,000, let's just say 4,000 meters and stash the bikes. Then throw paneers over the shoulders, backpacks, whatnot, and then hike up to the base camp, set up camp, and then climb from there. Wow. And and for, for, for Sahama, actually, the weather was so bad for maybe five days in a row before that we just found an abandoned Bolivian, like abandoned tiny little church out in the Altiplano and just camped in the church for a couple of days waiting for a nice weather window, which, which was an experience in itself. But. Mm-hmm. And uh, what other peaks did you guys climb in Bolivia? Uh, we also did Acotango and uh, Parinacota. And what was really fun is that for Parinacota, my we we cycled to La Paz, and my dad actually came and visited. And my dad is the one who taught me about mountaineering and mm-hmm. took me on my first mountaineering adventures. Okay. So I actually was able to lead him up his first six thousand meter peak. <laughs> oh, that's cool! It was really fun. Yeah. Um, and then later uh, in Ecuador. Uh, I climbed Chimborazo, which is the highest peak in Ecuador. And yeah, and I don't know, just these like part of the reason I enjoy bike touring and bike packing is to get to really remote places where not too many people have been. Yeah. And mixing a little bit of mountaineering uh, with the biking just brings you places where even fewer people have been I don't that's pretty amazing um where did you end up before flying back to the u.s how far did you get so i ended up getting to costa rica um and i would you like would you like me to tell about the what happened the last few days of my trip? Or... Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I was I was staying with a nice warm shower host in Panama uh, when the pandemic started, and my sister was planning on visiting me in Costa Rica. So 
I'd heard of some of the borders shutting in South America and decided, oh man, I should get to Costa Rica quickly before the border shuts. Then I can still see my sister, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And went and biked to the Panama-Costa Rican border and asked the border guards from Panama, oh, like, what do you guys think? Is the border going to stay open for a while? Is there any chance it will shut? <laughs> And they just very straight faced and told me, oh, just watch the news. Like, we don't know. Watch the news. And that evening at midnight, after I'd crossed from Panama to Costa Rica, the border shut behind me. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a a little bit of a wake up call, to say the least. Wow. And uh, where did you end up going in Costa Rica then until you, what happened after that? I, I just ended up cycling two days, and uh, the first day, I mean, it was, it was really weird cycling during the pandemic, because for one, I didn't have a local sim or anything yet, I couldn't get news, yet I had had all the news in Panama, and was just wondering, oh, what's the right call, do I fly home? Uh, I hadn't been home at this point for 14 months, okay. and... And I decided, okay, I'll go and get a hostel. I had been camping. Went and got a hostel to get good Wi-Fi. And when I was at the hostel, it was empty when I got there. And then tourists from Germany and Poland like came later in the night. And they were having trouble getting flights to go back home. And it was, it was a little bit of a wake-up call that, oh, man, things might get more difficult the longer I wait. So mm-hmm. I flew home, and I, I'm very happy with that decision so far, as hard as it was. Yeah, I think if you, you avoided like authorities coming and taking everybody and locking them down and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think Costa Rica is fairly... Doing all right. I mean, it's definitely quarantine, but as far as like, I've spoken with friends in Argentina and Colombia and Ecuador, and it's the quarantine that they're under right now. Um, Not able to go outside or anything. And I just feel for them because, I mean, here at home, I can go cycle every day if I want to at least. Yeah, it's the same in Canada. Malaysia had police on the streets and you only could go out if you're going for food, like something essential. And only one person could go. Like even my friend, her daughter was not allowed. She had to turn around, drive her daughter home, drop her off and then go by herself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean. So we're pretty fortunate still. (laughs) Oh, I I feel incredibly fortunate. Yeah. and the thing was, is that flights were flights were being canceled, and it was a little bit of a weird time with all the flights. So I was able to get a flight home for one hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> from Costa Rica. Oh wow, you got really lucky, yeah. I know. So as, as soon as I saw that, I said, "Okay, I just got, have to pull the trigger and get home." And um, do you know? Like, do you have a general plan of when you're going to start back up, and are you going to start from San Jose again, or? Where are you going to go from? It's so open-ended right now with just depending on how those countries do. Uh, so my intention, my, 
ideally I would fly right back to Costa Rica mm -hmm. and I'll take a bus to exactly where I stop pedaling and start pedaling north from there. Okay. Um, with how things are looking in Latin America, it seems like in some of those countries, things are they haven't had any bad cases or a really bad situation yet. And that's great because they can have some time to prepare. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it's nobody's immune from this. So yeah. I think eventually, I, who knows? But I, Do you I think maybe no to fly, fly to Alaska and then start from Dead Horse and kind of make your way down to Costa Rica? Maybe by the time you get to Mexico, things will be uh, more open. I, I've thought about that. And so that's one option. Um, and another thing I've thought about is I've always wanted to cycle the, uh, the Great Divide route here yeah. in the U.S. and I guess part of Canada. Yeah, just, so just a bit in Canada. On, yeah. yeah. Uh, so depending on how things look here in the United States, I might just go cycle that route this summer. Yeah, it'd be good. I, especially if I think if you started in San Diego and headed north, by the time you get to Canada, it should be open. I think our borders yeah. are, our, our borders will open by the end of the summer, I think. I mean, I hope so, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they might even open yeah, so, earlier. I mean, yeah. And I mean, there's so much to see here in the U.S. and and Canada as well. I mean, if those borders open, so I don't know. I could, I could do so much just within North America itself. Yeah, man, come to my Casa de Ciclista here in uh, Ottawa. <laughs> ah, gracias. I'll come. <laughs> it's not too far. <laughs> I might not be around for a big part of the summer too, though. I'm going to do some touring in within the country. So hopefully, as long as the provincial borders are all open, and I'll be uh, doing a inside Canada tour. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, where can people find you and follow you and um, support you if they uh, they want to know more about you? I think the best place to go first is uh, my Instagram, which is where is Carl? And uh, then also, if you like, you can watch my YouTube videos, which are on Carl Kroll. Uh, just search that. But everything can be found from the link in my Instagram. And then, yeah, if you want to support me on Patreon, I'm uh, just search Carl Kroll or Where is Carl on on uh, Patreon there. Awesome. Uh, and then, yeah, just to clarify with, uh, it's where underscore is underscore Carl. Okay. And, and Carl with a K. <laughs> where is un, uh, where underscore is underscore Carl with a K not as a single word <laughs> awesome yeah. um, I'll post yeah. I'll definitely post links in the blog on the website and stuff so people will be able to find you um, thank you so Carl yeah. it was a real pleasure having you this has been a a long a long chat but uh, it'll probably be just under two hours after editing out the initial start and stuff and whatnot so oh, wow awesome yeah well it's it's been a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Um, looking forward to keep following, and I'm definitely gonna watch some more of your videos. I I hadn't uh, watched too many of them up to this point, but then I, I was kind of watching a few today, and they're good. 
really made me want to go to the Central Asia, big time. Ah, uh, do it, man! You got to. <laughs> yeah, it's on the it's on the bucket list. The uh, it's on it's on the list. So <laughs> the ever growing bucket the, list. The right? ever growing bucket list. Yeah, it's like my Google Maps and places I want to uh, go. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for your time, and uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you. We'll do. Bye bye. Adios. Hey everyone, before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventure's other amazing partners. I'm very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bikepacking. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, they have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. I want to end my show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I receive from you regularly. It really motivates me to keep going with this project and to share people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or go to www.biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and my new touring tips page, which is slowly getting created. I'll also be integrating the Touring Talk podcast episodes into the Touring Tips section so you can listen to or read on whatever topics you like. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can also become one of my show supporters by going to www.patreon.com slash biketouradventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.